All right. Well, if this is your first time at Real Life, uh, <laughs> well, this movie was made back in 1979, so it's the life of Brian, um, <clears throat> and it had such an outrage. It caused such an outrage among Christians that, uh, and societies across Europe, that it was banned from some of the countries, like Ireland. And the promoters of this movie, the way they were advertising it, they were saying, it's so funny it's been banned in Norway. And it literally was. Um, I mean, this is a story of a guy by the name of Brian. And he's born the same day as Jesus, just a couple of houses down. And there is a confusion where people think that he is the Messiah. And the whole movie is about him trying to flee from people trying to turn him into a Messiah. He has this uh, girl named Judith that he wants to marry, and he just wants to live in oblivion and spend the rest of his life quietly, and yet he ends up on a cross. And the reality is, friends, this was a, it was a political spoof. It was a political propaganda. You know, by this time, by the time this movie is made, the entire Western civilization has been through two decades of turbulent time, a time where... Um, you know, all kinds of upheaval was taking place socially and politically and culturally. And in essence, the, uh, this movie is telling the audience saying, you know, give up your big dreams. Give up these hopes of changing the world. Just find your Judith, get a job, settle down. Life is not that bad. In many ways, this movie is a propaganda. It's telling you that the world is in a certain way. It's trying to describe the world and explain to us how we are to function as human beings. Robert Weber has a book titled, Who Will Narrate My World? And the underlying assumption of that book is that somebody will. Somebody will describe the world as it is. And my life will line up behind it. When we come to the Gospel of Mark, we find the exact same thing going on. Especially in this journey section that we've been in. Act 2. A journey from northern Galilee down all the way to Jerusalem. And this journey section that's sitting there in the middle that we've been covering the last couple of weeks. It's all about telling us what life with Jesus is really all about. And tonight we're going to look at chapter 10. And it's all about describing the kingdom life. Describing to us this cross-shaped life as the path of true greatness. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Well, Father, we stand before you uh, tonight. And Lord, uh, in the depths of our hearts, as your people, we want to live lives that are consistent and congruent with who you are. And yet, we live in a world that tells us and paints certain images of greatness. And then it invites us to live into them. And Father, tonight we open our hearts before you. And we ask that your scriptures would describe a different path of greatness for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, picking up in verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them 
what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this journey section, three times Jesus would tell his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. And three times disciples are absolutely blind and they don't get what he's talking about. In this case, we have John and James, kind of a, the Zebedee brothers. There are some other places they are called the sons of thunder, probably because of their temper. Because of their personality, they pull Jesus aside. And they're kind of trying to bully him. They're telling Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You see, in English, it's a little bit more of a convoluted statement than it is in Greek. In Greek, it's a play on two words that sound very similar. And in essence, it's saying, we demand you do. We say, you respond. In essence, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, yes, we followed you. But now, look, we've got a script for life. And here it says, sons of Zebedee say, jump. Jesus responds with, how high? And in many ways, when I pause and think about it, I do and we all do the same thing to Jesus very often. We come to Jesus and we want Jesus on our own terms. We have followed Jesus, but now we want him to be that local coffee shop barista. You know, kind of like we put in money at the table and we say, white mocha. And it would be inappropriate for a barista to give me anything other than what I just requested. You see, in essence, I say internship, Jesus is where? I say scholarship, Jesus says, how much? I say, girlfriend, Jesus says, how hot? And when, and when Jesus does not respond to us the way a local barista would, our faith comes crumbling down. Suddenly, we don't know what to do with our faith 
when we find that Jesus doesn't want to give himself to us on our own terms. Simon Tugwell expresses it this way. He says, Christianity has to be disappointing precisely because it is not a mechanism for accomplishing all our human ambitions and aspirations. It is a mechanism for subjecting all things to the will of God. Christianity necessarily involves a remaking of our hopes and our disappointments are an unavoidable part of that process. See, in essence, this is what happens. I mean, the Gospel of Mark opens with guys like James and John dropping their nets and following him. And now, I mean, nine chapters later, they're looking at him and they're saying, we want you to do something for us. And when Jesus asked them, what is it exactly you want me to do for you? They're saying, we want to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. You see, we have rabbinic documents from the time of Jesus where the Jewish rabbis were told that when they appear in public, they need to have their most celebrated people on his right and the second most celebrated people on the left. And in essence, that's what these guys are asking. You see, John and James had just seen Jesus heal Jairus' daughter. They had just been with Jesus when he transfigures himself and gives them the glimpses of his glory. So they know that this guy is up to something great and they're knocking on the doors of Jerusalem. So they're preparing themselves for the right and the left of Jesus. And in essence, what's going on is that, yes, they have left their nets and followed Jesus. But as they followed him, they brought their dreams of success with them. Yes, they abandoned their old ways of life, but they brought with them the images of greatness that have been shaped by the world around them. And now Jesus brings them to the crossroads. Now Jesus brings them to the point where they have a decision to make. And his decision is expressed in this way by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 20th century German martyr. He says this, he says, disciple simply burns his boat and goes ahead. He is called out and has to forsake his old life in order that he may exist in the strictest sense of the word. The old life is left behind and completely surrendered. The disciple is dragged out of his relative security into the absolute insecurity from a life which is observable and calculable into a life where everything is unobservable and fortuitous out of the realm of finite into the realm of infinite possibilities. You see, yes, they have left their nets, but they have not burned their boat yet. And when I think about Christians who have burned their boats, and I've mentioned this before, I love reading Christian biographies, especially of men and women who've lived in the times that are distant from ours. And I think of Henry Martin, Henry Martin was one of the earliest modern-day missionaries. Uh, he He was born in England to a prominent family at the end of the 18th century. And just like some of the other famous missionaries of that period, he had gone to Cambridge University and converted at Cambridge. You know, this is Cambridge. I mean, these are the days where they're graduating classes less than 20 people. And while at Cambridge, he's at the top of his class, He has the bright, shining academic career as a mathematician ahead of him. And he abandons all that in order to become a missionary in India. 
And yet when we think about it, a lot of times we have these glowing pictures of missionaries and they're so far removed from us and they look like they're dressed uh, like some strange people. But these are people that were your age. I mean, he's 21 years old. And he makes a decision to forsake the guaranteed future. Guaranteed future as an academic in one of the most premier British universities in order to become a missionary in India. And at that time, he knows, he understands that if he's leaving, that means that most likely he is going and burning his boat. Listen to what he writes. Um, As he is departing, he writes in his journal. He says, my feelings were of those of a man who should suddenly be told that every friend he had in the world was dead. That only by prayer for them, I shall be comforted. And this was indeed a refreshment to my soul because by meeting them at the throne of grace, I seem to be again in their society. In essence, he knows. I mean, these are the days before internet and before, um, you know, airfares and all that stuff. He knows that most likely he's not going to see these people again. And the separation from those that are closest to him is going to be the wound that he's going to carry during his short but very bright missionary activity in India. And yet when he shows up, one of the most dramatic things happened. A couple months after being in Kolkata, uh, he writes a letter. He writes a letter proposing marriage to his sweetheart. And then he has to wait for 15 months to hear a response from her. Fifteen agonizing months of waiting for her to reply. And this is another excerpt from his journal. An unhappy day. Received at last the letter from Lydia, in which she refused to come because her mother will not consent to it. Grief and disappointment threw my soul into confusion at first. But gradually, as my disorder subsided, my eyes were opened and reason resumed its office. And gentlemen, those of you that have been broken up before, uh, let me show you how men respond when ladies break up with them. This is a letter he wrote to Lydia on that day. It says, Though my heart is bursting with grief and disappointment, I'm right not to blame you. The rectitude of all your conduct secures you from censure. Alas, my rebellious heart, what a tempest agitates me. I knew not that I had made so little progress in spirit of resignation to the divine will. For next five years, letters will go back and forth as they're both hoping that the parents will change their minds and that they will be able to be reunited. And then this is the last letter that we're given. At the end of his letter, he writes this. He says, soon we shall occasion for pen and ink no more but i trust that i shall shortly see you face to face love to all saints believe me to be yours forever most faithfully and affectionately h martin this letter was written a month before he would die Uh, he was in constantinople turkey and he contracted a disease and uh, he died and was buried by complete strangers in an unknown city. And he would never see her face again. And yet, on one of the last journal 
entries, he writes this. He says, whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. You see, when I look at a guy like this, here's a man who burned his boat. Here's a man that put all his eggs in the Jesus basket. And he said, I'm going to the point of no return. My life is completely his. And the question that we'll wrestle through is, how do we do it? What does this mean to live the kind of life that we have burned our boat? And again, we turn to Jesus. You see, James and John are staring at Jesus saying, we demand you answer. And Jesus' response is very simple. He asks them a question. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? In essence, what Jesus is saying, that this whole idea of the drinking a cup, is meaning it was an idiom in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times describing somebody's fate, somebody's way of life. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're asking the wrong question. The question you ought to be asking is this. Am I willing to live the kind of a life that Jesus is living? Am I willing to embrace the cup and the baptism which he has received? You see, three times, Jesus over and over again is looking at his disciples and he's telling them what is at the center of his mission. What is at the center of his glory and its suffering and death and they don't get it. Second and third time, immediately the disciples turn and argue about who's the greatest among them. But in the first time, in chapter 8, when Jesus describes to them, when he reveals to them his path of suffering, immediately Peter pulls him aside and tries to abort his mission. And Jesus' response is absolutely stern. He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he turns to his disciples and says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For what, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and selfful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He's saying, you want the path of greatness? Pick up your cross and follow me. Do you think Peter got the message? Listen to what he writes to churches that he would oversee 30 years later. In his first letter, he writes this. He says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
You see, Peter looks at his audience and he says, Jesus is our example. And the Greek word that he uses there is hupogramos. And what hupogramos was, it was the way you taught little kids the Greek alphabet. You, you took this wax thing and you etched on it four Greek words that made up the entire Greek alphabet. And little children would sit and trace those letters. And they would learn their alphabet. They would learn their ABCs by tracing those wax letters. In essence, Peter is looking at his audience and he's saying, you learn the language of faith. You learn the life of faith by tracing the life of Jesus. Jesus is our hoopogramas. Jesus is. So when we come to this text, what is that Jesus does? He goes the life and the path of suffering and death. And again, we hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who tells us this. He says, The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like those of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. Jesus summons the rich young man and calling him to die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. You want a path of greatness? Tracing the life of Jesus and his way of suffering and giving his life up ultimately for the sake of God and for the sake of his kingdom. George Otis, who was a missionary in the Middle East, and who had recently come back, he's been, uh, he's been reflecting back on the ministry among the Muslim uh, nations. And one of the questions he was asking, why is that the church has not been able to take root and have impact on Muslim societies? And his response is, is because the church is no longer willing to follow Jesus down the path of martyrdom. He says, undercover church can never change the society. Only people who are willing to follow Jesus to the point of death can transform their countries. And as I was reading about this, I got an email earlier today. Uh, and we can put up a picture. Uh, <clears throat> this is a 34-year-old Iranian pastor by the name of Yusuf Nadarhani. And just today, Iranian court has sentenced him to death. Uh, he was given three chances to denounce his Christian faith. First, they told him that he needed to convert back from Christianity to Islam. And he said no. Then he was told to renounce his Christian faith. And he said no. Then he was asked to uh, testify that Muhammad is the prophet. And he said no. And from what, what, what we know, he could be already dead. You see, here's a guy who burned his boat for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. 
And he's not alone. Let's put up the next slide. 164,000, that's a number of Christians that are being murdered for their faith every year. And this number, by the year of 2025, is going to go up to 210,000 a year. And let's put up the next number. This is a number of Christians that have been murdered for their faith just in the 20th century. That's more than in all 19th centuries preceding that. 45 million people, ordinary people like Pastor Yusuf Nadarhani, who have burned their boats and followed Jesus to the point of no return. And as I sit here in the comforts of the Western world, it's easy for me to say that the reason the church hasn't taken root in Muslim countries is because people are not willing to die their faith. Because the moment I make the pronouncement, the question comes back at me. What about me? What about us? What is our price tag? Friends, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn 40 at the end of this year. I remember when I was 20 years old. I remember a 20-year-old student at Ohio State University living in Nosker Hall North Campus. And I remember gathering with my friends in a lawyer, kneeling down and praying and asking God to change North Campus. And I remember the exhilaration and the excitement that was running through my veins, trusting God that he indeed could transform North Campus with the gospel. I'm twice that old by now. And my biggest fear is that I will become the guardian of some kind of a sacred religious relic. A keeper of a Christian aquarium. The kind of a let's Christian believers coast through their time at Ohio State. My biggest fear is that I would stop believing that God can indeed bring the Schottenstein dream to fruition. And my biggest fear is that there will be a price tag on my life that will take me out of the game. That will give up on those dreams of seeing every nook and cranny of this campus be saturated with the gospel. My biggest fear is that I would give up dreams of locking arms with Brian and Jenny Metzer and seeing Cleveland be reached with the gospel. My biggest fear is that I will give up on dreams of seeing Chicago be transformed with the gospel. My biggest fear is that I will give up on our dreams of seeing Slovenia and Venezuela be reached with the gospel. And from there, seeing Ohio State become the pipeline of Christ-centered laborers that will reach every corner of that globe. That is my biggest fear, knocking on the door of 40. And my question for you tonight is, what is your biggest fear? Have you burned your boat Have you followed Jesus to the point of no return where if somebody were to put a gun to your head, just like this young pastor with a young family in Iran is facing, what would you do? What is your price tag? What is the price that will take you out of this little cubbyhole club of Christianity that will take you out of the game? And it is my hope and my dream is that we'll be so intoxicated with who Jesus is 
that just the same way we see the blind Bartimaeus have his eyes open and chasing down behind Jesus, that that will be true of us as a movement. That we will be so enthralled with the magnitude, with the beauty, and with the majesty of Jesus that we will burn our boats, that we will drop our nets, and yes, we will lay down in the moving traffic for the sake of our God and for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray that deep down in our hearts, our hearts will exclaim to you that there is no price on our life. Lord, that there is nothing and nowhere we would rather be but in your presence. That there is no cause we would rather participate in but the one of seeing you march across this world and reclaim it as your own. And Jesus, to whatever capacity we need to repent of our sin, to whatever degree we need to renounce our selfish ambitions, our puny dreams and small attachments, Lord, I pray that you would burn those boats tonight. Lord, I pray that even as we worship you in the next few minutes, we will see you clearly as who you truly are, majestic, exalted, King. We love you, Jesus.